Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm chapter 48, verses 9 through 11. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Uh, This morning, we are here to experience what we just read in Psalm 48. The people in the psalm assembled for public worship to reflect on how God has displayed his steadfast love. But not just to them and their individual salvation, but actually for the peoples, his people, throughout redemptive history, and for the future where his name and praise would be amongst all the peoples. And so it's not just for preserving his people, but it's also for shining light on new peoples. They were gathering in the presence of God because that's what is in the temple. And we'll be reading a lot of scripture today, but I wanted to start here for two reasons. One, honestly, it's because this was our psalm from CBR last week, right? So, so I want to point out that the scriptures all throughout speak to this theme of dwelling, that God dwells among his people in the temple. And right now we're in a series called Dwell, which Ben mentioned earlier. And we're tracing God's commitment to his mission to dwell among his people in all the earth. We're tracing it through the scriptures. And last week, we talked about the fact that God dwelt in Eden, that God's presence was there. And this week, we're we're tracing it forward to this biblical concept of temple, that God dwells among his people in a temple. And of course, the idea of dwelling is that you make your home there, that you reside there. If you dwell there, that's where you live. So if we're going to say that God dwells anywhere, we're going to say that's where God has chosen to put his very specific presence. Now, everything changes when a superstar moves into your neighborhood, right? They, they take up dwelling in a house next to you or in your community, you're kind of interested when a new person moves into a house next to you. You're like, oh, I okay, so who's this person living next to me? And is it going to be awkward? And at some point I need to go talk to them. But when a superstar moves in, you're really excited to go talk to them, right? Imagine that. Imagine if, if some, your favorite superstar, imagine that person moving into the house next door. What would happen? Well, you'd be really intrigued, wouldn't you? You would be looking for an opportunity to meet them. And where I'm from in Southern Indiana, there was a superstar who lived close to us in French Lick, Indiana, real place. It's just uh, the opposite direction from Santa Claus, Indiana, also a real place. (laughs) And in French Lick, Indiana, or technically West Baden, but it's really French Lick, says it on the map, Larry Bird lived there. That's where he was from. And he built a house there, And his mother lived there, but he did too. And 
we would drive to French Lick just to drive by and see if we can maybe catch a glimpse, see if Larry Bird was there. And when Larry was there, it was the talk of the community, right? People knew in the off season if Larry was there for some time. And if people drove by the house and there was a full court basketball court in the front yard and they would see him sometimes uh, playing basketball, just shooting free throws, uh, shooting around. It was a big deal. So now at the risk of sounding like Joan Osborne from that 1995 song, What If God Was One of Us? I want to ask a similar question. What if God moved into your neighborhood? It's a serious question, right? We, we get it. Like, okay, so if, if, uh, if Larry Bird moved into the house next to us, we might be interested. But what if God moved into our neighborhood? What would it be like? I mean, think about it. What if God moved into your neighborhood or into our city? It wouldn't only be the talk of the town. People wouldn't only drive by the house to see if he was there. But no doubt things would change. Something would be different if God actually moved in to the house next door or into the neighborhood. What would be different in your neighborhood? I mean, think about it. Think about your knowledge of your neighborhood. Think about your knowledge of the people in your neighborhood. Think about the knowledge of the city. What would change if God took up residence in Maitland or College Park or Winter Park or Soto, Dr. Phillips? Orlando, Paramore, what would happen? We would expect something to happen. And this really isn't hypothetical because, in fact, God is moving into our neighborhoods. He has moved into our neighborhoods. This isn't hypothetical. It's not even metaphorical. God dwells in his people by his spirit. And this morning, I need to show us five movements in redemptive history to see this clearly from the scriptures that God wants our neighborhoods and communities to be different because his church is there. And the first movement I want to take us through is the purpose of God's dwelling. And this is a little bit of recap from last week. The purpose of God dwelling among his people is worship and mission. Last week, we said it was God's intent from the very beginning that his image-bearing human beings would be in his presence in Eden, cultivate the garden, and take that place throughout the entire world. And that mission accomplished looked like image-bearers all over the world, having expanded the garden, taking the latent potential of all of creation, creating culture, creating all types of things, communities, families, cities, architecture everywhere, but it would be fueled, not like the Tower of Babel where people were trying to go up to man to make an identity for themselves, but it would be fueled by the very presence and worship of God himself. But we talked about the fact that almost immediately, they didn't even get out of the garden in Eden before they failed. So then the question is, will this purpose, God's mission, continue to go forward? And the reason this question comes up is because sin entered the world and threaten God's mission. So God's mission is fueled by the worship of God. It's very clear. And the worship of God happens in the presence of God. And so if God's presence fuels our mission, then sin actually cuts off the fuel line. Imagine trying to drive a car anywhere if someone cuts the fuel line. There's no energy. There's no power. 
And sin continually separates us from the presence of God. So after sin in Eden, that's why Adam and Eve were exiled out of the garden. And that's why there are angels put there with swords to block anyone from coming back in because sin separates us from the presence of God. So if God's mission is to go forward, if the purpose of God's dwelling is to continue, then something has to be done with this problem of sin. And something, in fact, is done. The problem of sin is resolved. You see, provision is made by God because God wants his mission to go forward. So God comes up with this entire sacrificial system. Why, right? Some of us are confused. We read the Old Testament. We think, what's with all these sacrifices? And there are different ways we can answer that. But this morning, it's, it's not just something small we're going to talk about. It's a, it's a golden thread type thing. It, it is a, a very big picture pervasive way to understand the scriptures. And that is, why does God make provision for sin in the sacrificial system? And it's because he wants to dwell among his people and he cannot dwell among his people when sin is present. And so we have this purpose of God's dwelling and it might be thwarted by the problem of sin, but then God provides for that problem so that his purpose can keep going forward. And in fact, we see this promise of God's dwelling continue on through the scriptures. And that's the second movement I want to show is that God deals with the problem of sin so that the purpose of mission can go forward. And he keeps promising his people that he will dwell with them. Even in the midst of sin, God does not give up on his mission. Listen to this. God will dwell with his people. God will love his people. We will flourish in the presence of God. He'll be with us and we will worship him and enjoy him and flourish in him and his goodness will spread over all the earth. Listen to these verses. It's amazing. I'm going to read a number of verses here. You can read with me. I'm not making this up. This is central to God's heart and mission. Exodus 25, 8. Let them make me a sanctuary. I'll tell you what a sanctuary is later. Let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. Exodus 29. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why? Why did he save them? Why does he continue to provide for sin and save his people? That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Leviticus 26, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you. That's a throwback to Genesis chapter two when God's walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Again, why does God save his people? That you should not be their slaves. Why? So God can dwell among them. Zechariah 2.10, this prophecy of the future. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The last one, Ezekiel 37. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them 
and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Isn't that amazing? These are just some of the verses that I can pull out. You see, many of us, we, I think we live our lives as though God was the reluctant one, right? As though God must be found, as though he's the lost one. And somehow we have to go find him. As though God is constantly moving away from us and we must chase him. It's actually the very opposite. See, the story of the Bible is not human beings trying to find God. It's a story of God pursuing human beings. It's, you see, it's we who are lost, not God. Redemptive history is not the story of human beings in search of a long lost God who's playing hard to get. It's about a good God who is love pursuing a lost people. It is we who are lost, not God. And so often we can come to the Bible thinking that God, his desire is to keep us at arm's length. That he's trying to get us to chase him. When in fact, think of the parable of Jesus tells, I'll leave the 99 for the one. God is pursuing us. And that's why we don't get a pontificate on what we think God might be like. He's revealed himself to us very clearly. And it's up to us to respond. And so we see that the purpose of God's presence is for his glory to be enjoyed by his people all over the earth. And then he deals with the problem of sin. And in that provision, he still keeps promising us that his original intent will keep going. And then we see this progression of God's dwelling. You see, God moves from Eden and then to small traveling sanctuaries with the patriarchs and then the tabernacle, and then finally to Solomon's temple. If we were to trace this, first I need to say a sanctuary is a holy place, which like the ground of the burning bush, you remember that? Moses has to take his his sandals off because it's holy ground. Why is it holy ground? Because God is there. And it becomes a sanctuary. Any place where God chooses to put his dwelling is a sanctuary. It's a holy place because the presence of the Lord is then in their midst. And you see, you see this in, in the tabernacle when God really does move into the neighborhood. He's in the center of their camp. And it's why they must live holy lives. It's why he cares what they do. He tells them, hey, I'm going to be walking in your midst. So, You better live in a certain way. There are things I don't want to see. There are things that I shouldn't see. And we get his gracious law and his word. But when we look at this progression of God's dwelling, his presence comes with this promise. So we can go back to Abraham. He comes to Abraham. He pursues Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make a great people out of you so that my presence now can go throughout all of the earth through this people. And he tells Abraham, I'm with you. And then he guarantees the expansion of his presence through Isaac. In Genesis 26, 24, he tells Isaac, I am with you. And then he tells Jacob in Genesis 28, 15, I am with you. And he tells Moses in Exodus 3, I am with you. 
And then he promises God's people in 2 Chronicles 22 at the building of Solomon's temple. He says, I will come and dwell in this place among you. See, the fact that God was dwelling with Israel was to make them stand out among the nations. It was so that they would spread God's presence through the world by the beauty of their life and their witness and their worship. But the problem was, is that they failed just like Adam. The problem was, is that the temple, which was really pretty special. <laughs> you look at, go read Second Chronicles, glorious place. The problem was, is that over time, people begin to worship the temple and not the God who dwelt there. They begin to find some type of, uh, of security in this beautiful place instead of this beautiful person. And what happened is God sent them into exile, just like he sent Adam and Eve into exile. And so I think sometimes for us today, we can fall into that same trap, right? In the church where God's presence dwells, and we'll get there in a minute, we can somehow worship the power that we think some institution can give us in this culture instead of worshiping the God who has all the power. We sort of think we can take control of this thing and we can make the church somehow respectable so that we can gain power, whether it be financially or politically or have some type of clout around us. I mean, we're, we're tempted to worship the structure instead of the person. But the good news is, is that the story of the scriptures, as God's people do that, God is committed to his promise. He's committed to his presence dwelling among his people. And so we see that God's dealt with the problem of sin. He's continued his promise to dwell There's been a progression of God's dwelling all throughout redemptive history. And then when we get to the story of Christmas, there's a pivot in God's dwelling. And we're going to deal more with this in the incarnation on December 24th. But the pivot is this. In Jesus, God goes from a temple building to a person. You see, in John 1, John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, you could say, and tabernacled among us. God chose to locate his presence on earth in Jesus, the God-man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In John 1, Jesus is... uh, is talking to Nathaniel. And, and Nathaniel was really impressed because Jesus told him he saw him under a tree and tells him all these things about Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's freaking out a little bit. Nathaniel's saying, how did, how did this man know this? And he goes from, does anything good come out of Nazareth to this is something special? And Jesus tells him, truly, truly, I say to you, do you think this is impressive? you'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, Jesus is saying to him there that the place where heaven and earth are connecting is me. In, the, in Eden, God's presence dwelled. In the tabernacle, God's presence dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And in the incarnation, God's presence dwells in Jesus. So you see, now God has pivoted in this promise to dwell. He's pivoted to a person. 
This is why the Pharisees were so upset with Jesus because they were still worshiping the building instead of the God who was to inhabit the building. And Jesus makes a comment about the temple. And they ask him a question and Jesus just simply says, well, tear it down. Let's just tear this thing down and I'll I'll build it again in three days. They were so confused by that. And I think sometimes we can be confused by that if we lose track of what God is doing and what it means to be a temple because a temple is where God dwells. And so what Jesus is saying in that conversation in John 2 and what we learned throughout John's gospel is that Jesus's resurrection body was the beginning of the end time temple where God's unique presence was to be found. And so the special presence of God in in the Eden temple and then with the patriarchs and these traveling sanctuaries and then with Israel in the temple is now in Jesus. It's almost as if the Bible is one story. Now, in this pivot, which we'll talk more about in the incarnation, right? It's Christmas time, and I talked like two minutes about Jesus. There, there are implications for us, because not only does God deal with the problem of sin to keep the purpose of his presence, not only does he keep promising his presence, not only does his presence progress throughout redemptive history, not only does it pivot to a person in Jesus, but now the people of God are his new dwelling. The church is the temple of God. This is why, going back to the beginning, I said, what if God moved into your neighborhood? What would happen? Would things change? The growth of the church in Paul's letter to the Ephesians and in 1 Peter is understood as the growth and expansion of God's temple. Believers are not merely like the temple of God. We are the temple of God. We are the beginning of these promises that we read, these Old Testament prophecies of God coming to dwell forever with his people, taking up residence now by the Spirit in his people. You see, the good news of Christmas for the world today is that God's presence is growing on earth through his church. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we read in Acts that the apostles were powerful because they had been with Jesus. That's why their witness was so powerful. And so for us, we have access to that same power, that same spirit, that same Jesus that the apostles were with, we now can be with in union with him. The same spirit that came down at Pentecost is the spirit that changed your heart to actually believe in this Jesus. We sang earlier that we must rest in him wholly, not hedge our bets. And if you've done that, it's because the Holy Spirit has warmed your heart. That's the only way. That's the only way that you can trust Jesus. You see, for me, and I say for us, the problem is that with the busyness of our modern lives, we spend so little time with Jesus and wonder why we have so little power. We spend so little time with Jesus and we just wonder why we have such little power in our own life and in our community. 
and we know we lack power. The problem is, is that we don't go to the source in worship. We seek it in things we can control and we seek it in things we can manufacture instead of relationship with the risen Christ through the spirit. We wonder why the church lacks power to heal broken marriages. We wonder why the church lacks power in the lives wrecked by addictions and boredom. It's because our lives are so frantic and busy and powerless, but you feel important when you're busy. You can feel important. I can feel important and be completely powerless. You and I can feel important and miss Jesus. You and I can feel important and lack purpose. We can be important and we can feel important and be nothing. We can be a shell of what the church could be. But when we behold the glory of the Lord, we who are the temple are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Remember like last week, we are meant to reflect the power and light of God. And we're like that glow-in-the-dark toy that has no hope of glowing in the dark unless it's been charged by the light. And you and I must drink deeply of this presence of God so we can be charged by the light of his presence and then shine out. Do any of you over here in G45, any of you guys have toys that glow in the dark? You have what? Plankton. I don't know anything about that. But if it's like a toy that glows in the dark, if you keep it in the drawer, it's not going to work. That's right. That's right. This is getting out of hand now. So (laughs) the point is that you do somewhere have toys that glow in the dark or stickers or something anything. And if they're in a drawer or under your bed, you turn off the lights, they're not going to glow. But if you want them to glow in the dark for about 30 minutes before you go to bed, you just put them underneath the lamp. You turn that thing off, poof. And we are made to be like that. I want us to know this. At New City, any church, our mission is not fulfilled because of the sufficiency of our intellect or because of our financial resources. Our mission, the mission of God, is guaranteed, not by those things, but by the supernatural resources of a God who promises his presence in his people to fulfill his mission. That's how we have any hope of our neighborhoods and communities being changed. We must go deep in the presence of God And this morning, some of you need to hear that Jesus is with you. The last words that he gave before he sent his church to go make disciples, the last words he gave in the gospel of Matthew were, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And some of you today are, you feel weak and you feel weary and you're wounded and you need to hear Jesus is with you always. He's with you. He knows your pain. He's there to comfort you, right? We just read in CBR, Community Bible Reading, this this past week, that all who are weary can come to him and he will give them rest. 
And some of us this morning, you need to hear, God is with you. So pay attention and wake up because he's watching you in your wandering. He's watching you in that pet sin. You are not fooling him. He's not surprised, but he knows. And you need to hear, God is with you. So turn back to him. Be open to him. Tell him. It's like the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells these people, you are the temple of God. Then later, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, Paul says. And he says this, and God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. He's quoting Vidius. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and separate from them. He's saying, listen, this privilege you have of my presence should propel you toward a desire of holiness. It should propel you to reflect my image to the world around you. Some of us need to hear that this morning. And as we saw last week, our witness must flow from our worship. And I think the church, us, me, we too often take sin lightly because we take God lightly. God's presence is here. He's not far off, sort of peeking in from time to time. He is here. And it does take eyes of faith to see this. But eyes of faith aren't somehow less than these eyes that are seeing. But it sees more than that. It sees through that. It it. it it enlivens our imagination to see things as they really are. And so as you and I know that God is in our midst right now, that God is moving into our neighborhoods through us because we are the temple, the only place we will find power is to go before him in worship, which leads to lives of repentance and joy flows out of lives of repentance because repentance comes from the kindness of the Lord in worship, which is why we started with Psalm 48. When God's people come together in the temple, in this place, because we are the temple and meditate on all his works, not only do his praises go out among us, but they go out to the nations. They go out to those around us. All of us, for some reason or another, whether we're weak and wounded or wandering, we need to hear this. God is with us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. You know exactly where we are. You know the hidden sins. You know the hidden struggles, you know, the weariness better than we do. And you have compassion on that. I ask that all of us now would turn to you, either in our weakness or our wandering, that we would come back to you, that we would lay ourselves now in response at the feet of Jesus and ask for your power. Would you give us that power so that sin could be destroyed in our life and so that we could be charged in your presence to to shine light into the world around us. Please do that now.
Give us the awe that you gave those shepherds that first Christmas night. In Jesus' name, amen.